This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm real excited about starting 2020 off with a great conversation I had with a wonderful drummer and musician, Steve Gould. As a drummer, Steve has an impressive resume working with artists like Owl City, Sarah Borales, Corey Wong, and more recently Ben Rector and Matt Kearney. He's currently the lead music director at a large church in Phoenix, Arizona, where he helps facilitate 10 campuses that the church has and helps to organize the music and the musicians that operate at these 10 locations. In my research and listening and getting to know Steve's playing more, I feel like the term modern drummer is very appropriate for the work that he's been asked to do. We get into some of that in discussing how he applies tastefully the use of electronics and some of the work that he did, especially with Al City and Sarah Borales. Zach and I are very excited to announce that if you are in Nashville, Saturday, January 25th, at 1 p.m., we will be part of a drum day at Lane Music in Brentwood. That's 1 p.m. on Saturday, January 25th. We will be opening up this drum day with a presentation uh, all about working and performing as a professional musician. There's also two great drummers on after us. There is a presentation by Jeff Brown, a great drummer and alum of the podcast. He's going to be performing and giving tips about working as a drum tech on tour. And there's also going to be a great clinic by podcast alum Jared Pope. And Jared will perform and give drum tips about playing many genres of music. He's currently on tour with Tom Kiefer Band, the singer from Cinderella, Damon Johnson, who's been a part of Thin Lizzy, Brother Kane. But both these players have been alumni on the Working Drummer podcast. Feel free to go back and check those guys out in the archives. But we are very excited about this. This is going to be a first for Zach and I to do this presentation. And we are very excited about doing something again live through the podcast. So please join us if you can, January 25th at Lane Music in Brentwood, Tennessee. Friend of the podcast, Brian Stevens, has produced some exclusive content for our Patreon page. He put together a 50-minute video, a great tutorial on preparing to record and how to analyze your recording chops. I encourage you to check out our Patreon page. For even as little as a dollar, you can access the video and the bonus content that's on there. And like I said, most recently is Brian Stevens' 50-minute video that is just so well-produced and well-done, and we thank Brian for, for doing that. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. So here you go. Enjoy my conversation with Steve Gould. Continuing into my 40th year, playing music still, actively listening, practicing, um, trying to sharpen myself. It's, it's all so that I can kind of like uncover what is all po possible for me as, as a, a as an artist, like what, what all am I able to experience as a player? How many different settings can I get involved in where the people 
that are playing alongside me where, where we're all kind of like the, the whole is greater than some of the parts. Yeah. It, it requires that all of us be continually doubling down on the skill set instead of relaxing into the thing that has been sufficient up to this point. It's like, oh, well, I, you know, I've, I've been able to do some tours and get some work. So I guess I'm good to go. Yeah. Like, man, not a chance. Like I'm, uh, I'm trying to uncover stuff. I get, this makes me think of last summer. I played a gig with Corey Wong mm -hmm. where, um, like we, we did this thing for a little bit where he would have two drummers like me and Patar, his regular guy would, would play the same drum set at the same time. Yep. Uh, because he, he was a lefty and it's kind of this interesting, like mirror image setup. And, and that was like a gimmick that Corey would did for like a year, but mainly Patar plays with Corey by himself and I'm off doing other things. And then every now and then Patar can't do it. And I will do a show for Corey just myself. So gotcha. that happens maybe three or four times a year, aside from the studio stuff that I do with Corey. And we played this festival. Um, we were in Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania, a festival called peach fest. It's like a jam band thing. Cause Corey's gotten really well received in the jam band world. Okay. And it was one of the gigs that I was playing by myself. Mm -hmm. And I had I hadn't played with Corey in, in months and months and months. So I'm you know reviewing his music a little bit, but also knowing that there's improvisation involved and just making sure that I know the material enough. But it wasn't like I was sitting around practicing his songs because they're they're you know open ended enough that you can't really go in with too much of a plan or you're gonna you're gonna strong arm the improvisation. So I, I there's a horn section. I show up, Kevin. McIntyre's on bass, which is a fantastic bass player that I've done a ton of work with in the past. This guy, Kevin Gastonway, uh, everybody calls Kevin G on keys, who's also ferocious. Myself, Corey, this horn section. I'm looking forward to the gig. We start playing, and man, it it was like one of the coolest things I've ever been part of, partially because everybody on stage was sharp. Like all of these musicians yeah, uh, able to zig or zag right whenever it was necessary at the drop of a hat we're we're kind of following an idea and and going pretty deep into where that idea is leading us and it it was so musical and we got done with the set and i was just i'd had a, a really great time playing i was talking with the bass player like man it feels like this kind of moment is why we work our whole lives to be good at this instrument so that so that I'm sharp enough to participate. Mm -hmm. Like there was, there was some stuff going on. Like there was some stuff going down on stage, like some, some really cool music. And I wouldn't, I would not have been able to keep up with it. Truthfully. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like even, even six years ago. Wow. Uh, it's like, I, I needed the additional, um, honing that came from my work and the listening and just the efforts that I've put to, towards sharpening myself, even just over the last five or six years, I needed that in order to keep up with what was going on, uh, with this particular gig this past July. And I like all the people that I admire in the music world, that drummers or, you know, even piano players or whoever, I, I hear them speak this way. Like, like what, what they're capable of in their fifties is because of the work they put in, in their forties. And, and they're happy to uncover new, new potential in themselves as opposed to like they're starting to think about retirement or, or they're just coasting. Yeah. You know, like, Oh yeah, I put in all this work in my twenties and, and ever since I've just kind of been coasting along, which is maybe, maybe 
mean, that's true of a lot of other vocations. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know how somebody like an accountant does it, but it seems like you put in a bunch of work on learning how to do accounting and then, and then you get a career as an accountant and you just, you do accounting as opposed to like getting better every year at, at accounting, like as a, I don't know, I'm a, I think a weird example. Well, I think there's a there's a lot of things at play here. I mean, uh, when you're when you're a doctor, a lawyer, uh, uh, an accountant, there's technology. There's there's so like a doctor who practices medicine. So there's new techniques. There's new technology that that influences the direction of your career. I believe that's very much because that's another thing I want to talk to you about and and your style and your approach. But. before we get too far, I want to ask, like, what is it that you do to prepare for a gig that requires a lot of improvisation? What did you do to prepare for the gig with Corey? Or what have oh, you man. done in the last five or six years that helped sure. inf- shape you as a better player? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great, uh, that's a great question. Um, well, part part of it is, it's certainly like, identifying weaknesses mm-hmm. in my playing wherever like sniffing them out aggressively. Like I think I spent a little while in my twenties fully aware of the weaknesses that I had. And, and I just kind of avoided them almost like, uh, you know, I just, okay. I, I definitely like if I'm a basketball player and I don't know how to dribble with my left hand, like I'm a right-handed guy. So I just dribble with my right hand and that's that. Mm-hmm. And I'm never, I'm never going to even try to dribble with my left hand because I'm not good at it. And then it's like, oh, if you're going to be a serious basketball player, you got to learn how to do that so that you can dribble either direction. You, you have to tackle that weakness and get rid of it instead of just avoid that area of responsibility. I, I did that for a while when I was in my 20s. Like things that I wasn't great at, I just avoided. And then um, in my 30s, I started getting very aggressive toward finding where those weaknesses are so that I can eliminate them. As soon as I find the weakness, I work on it hard to eliminate it. But some of the last few years of my life have been kind of like actively looking for weaknesses that I didn't even know I had and getting, getting kind of excited when I discover them. Yes. Because like, oh, great. Now, now I can get rid of you. Now I can turn you into a strength instead of uh, having a weakness that I didn't know I had. So like in my own um, practice time, I often improvise just i just play whatever comes to my head um i try to make a solo out of it uh like i like i what i mean is i recognize that no other band members are playing with me so i listen to what i'm playing as if it's a full musical statement on its own just the drum set and i um try to make music but and and it's interesting to watch that unfold uh almost like i'm i'm playing the drums but i'm i'm a listener also I'm like the audience member and the musician at the same time listening to my ideas unfold and following them down a path that feels like musical, like a musical journey. And then the musical journey suggests that like I can feel it suggesting a turn toward this direction. So I follow that turn. And and as soon as I follow that turn, I recognize that I'm not comfortable doing that thing. Yes. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh, Oh gosh. Okay. Here it is. Here's a weakness. I just found it. Not because I, sat down and asked myself, Steve, what are your weaknesses? But I just started improvising and the improvisation took a turn that I didn't realize I wasn't good at. And so, so sometimes I will like stop at that point and, and dig a little further in, into the thing that felt uncomfortable. Like, uh, 
an example, a recent example would be um, like a shuffle, like a 16th note, like Purdy shuffle kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was uh, doing it like, I, re- I remember distinctly I was in like an Afro-Cuban kind of uh, setting improvisationally. I was playing these patterns and my left hand was starting to cramp up and I, I've done a lot of left hand exercises and my left hand is usually very helpful to me, uh, rather than being a source of cramping up and something that I have to like tolerate. Like my left hand is usually an asset. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was really confused as to why I, I was like, man, why is my left hand cramping up right now? And I realized that you're 40. Well, <laughs> yeah, look at that. Hey, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> Sorry. As your senior, that's what I'm allowed to joke. <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, I, I think as I looked into it, I realized that it was because of the triplet um, s- situation. Like the way I was accenting the left hand pattern that I was trying to play was like three notes at a time instead of four or two. And it occurred to me and I was like, Oh, that's, that's what I'm not good at with this. The weakness here isn't a left hand, just general like issues of strength or stamina. It's the fact that I've always developed strength and stamina with the left hand in a, in a duple setting rather than a triple setting. Interesting. And I, I came up with a couple exercises kind of like on the spot to like force myself into a, a triplet left hand, like that kind of, uh, exercise, that kind of demand and spent like a half an hour just like working on it. And the next day, uh, worked on it again. And I, that, that was like just a, a few months prior to that Corey gig. It's got nothing to do with playing Corey's music, but it has everything to do with me kind of like sniffing out, uh, something that I don't trust in, in my toolbox of, of relationship to the drum set. It's like, Ooh, that's, that tool's not very sharp. I got to sharpen that one. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to need it. That's, that's kind of the nature of improvising. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to be necessary on Corey's gig or not, but, uh, I just don't want any weaknesses present at all so that I can kind of freely turn, the, uh, the mechanism, whichever direction I want to turn it. And, point my musicality at whatever target I want to hit and then be able to hit it. Uh, that, that, that improvisation thing is, is much more, it's much more significant in its, uh, effect on me as a musician than I think, uh, I, I guess maybe I don't hear other drummers talking about improvising very often unless they're unless they're jazz drummers like obviously in the jazz world improvisation is the whole thing but yeah i find myself talking about improvisation and practicing it uh a lot more often than my fellow rock pop drummers and maybe that's my my jazz background but boy has it been fruitful and uh like i would recommend it to, yeah. <laughs> to anybody yeah well uh, steve there's no denying your abilities i mean when you hear and see you play um, what you what you are describing has weight to it um, because you, you do Thanks. you sound great you do a great job I've, I've also you. uh, you're welcome man uh, and it's been a joy listening and, and getting to know your playing uh, more and more this week um, the the I think the improv improvise improvising element is important for modern and pop drummers to um, respect because if you want to be effective in the studio, it involves improvisation. 
It oh, absolutely. It involves reacting to the music. If you're not in a jam band, if you're not in that kind of a band, that that's great. I mean, I grew up being a big Rush fan, and I know that Neil like is very meticulous about like planning everything out. And I think that's great, but that that doesn't work for those of us that aren't in Rush, and that's everybody else. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, isn't that a isn't that a funny thing though? Uh, like I find in the drummer community, especially like the online drummer community, whether it's Instagram or YouTube comments or something like that, someone like Neil Peart, because of his dominance within the very specific context of Rush, like like you just pointed out something that all of us know, which is that we're like the only drummer in Rush ever was Neil. Yeah. So the, the well, only person who's yeah. going to be operating, well, you know what I'm saying. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. So he's the only one that's operating from that place. The rest of us have to operate from the place of our musical context. Yeah. And I find that as a that's a pretty common breakdown, at least in the logic of some of these guys that I discuss stuff with, you know, commenters on online or whatever. They're like, well, if Neil Peart did it, then that means it's a good idea. Like, well, yeah, yeah. I, unless you're not in rush, <laughs> if yeah. you're not in rush, then maybe it's not a good idea just because Neil Peart was a juggernaut doesn't mean that his approach in Rush copies and pastes over into your approach yeah. with this singer-songwriter that you're at a coffee shop with or, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that contextualization of somebody great like Rush uh, mm-hmm. or like Neil. Uh, now, I guess your point that improvisation is good for pop and rock drummers because we're in, in studio settings in particular. Like, yes, yes, yes. I, I feel like improvisation is good across the board because it just forces you to learn the language of music instead yes. of reciting a script like a, that you've memorized. Like what you're describing Neil Peart would do with Rush, he's just memorizing a script, meticulously pouring over every detail of that script, every pregnant pause and every like uh, word choice. Uh, forgive the extensive metaphor here. But the point being like Neil Peart has everything dialed in detail-wise. And then... Uh, hey, we're going to make a change. We're going to talk about something different. Like, ooh, shoot, I only learned the script. Yeah. Now, I'd, and th- that's where I feel like improvisation is so valuable. It's like, oh, no, no, I, I actually, I know this language. I know the whole language. So if you want me to just adjust something on the fly, I can do it. And that, that feels, yeah, valuable in every genre as opposed to just in jazz. Listeners have heard me say this a thousand times. Like, Neil's playing is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I started playing drums. But early in my life, I recognized as a teenager that if I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, I can't be him. I have to be something that's flexible. Now, the the inspiration for him and that band has always been a part, but it's I don't listen to Rush before I go to a session. (laughs) Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I, I listen to Steve Jordan and Chad Cromwell and, you know, some yeah. Nashville guys and I, I get inside their head. And then when I don't have anything going on and I go to the gym, hey, guess what? I'm putting on a Rush record <laughs> and I'm feeling uh, like yeah. I'm and I'm feeling like I'm 16 again. But that's the, but your point is well taken. I mean, I think it's improvisation is is valuable in ways that sometimes are undefinable. Right. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a really, uh, I guess one important aspect of it is the really intense artistic headspace of like flow state where, where you're not 
you're not thinking ahead about what's going to happen. You're just kind of letting everything. It's almost like a stream of consciousness. Yes. Uh, that, that headspace, I don't know how to get into otherwise. I don't know how to get into a flow state unless I'm improvising. And every time I'm in that headspace, uh, of stream of consciousness, flow state, just sensory awareness like that, that headspace is so artistically potent. I'm just, I, I get so much joy out of it. I actually, I did a solo performance at my house last week. Uh, no joke. My, like my living room is kind of cool, uh, like high ceilings. And I've done some house shows there, had friends of mine come in and play solo, uh, songwriters and stuff like that. And I can fit about 35, 40 people in my front room area with, with someone in the corner performing like a coffee shop. And it's a kind of a cool vibe. And my, one of my friends in Phoenix, uh, his name is Ben Gowell. He's a great producer in his own right, guitar player, songwriter, uh, but is my boss at the mega church that I work at mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a music director. He, he, I've been pressuring him to do a solo show at my house. Uh, and I was like, all right, here's the deal. Like after Thanksgiving, let's do this before it gets busy for Christmas. You play a set of your music and I'm going to open for you solo drum set. <laughs> and, because <laughs> he he had said he was like a little bit nervous to play his songs by himself. He doesn't usually do that. It's like let's let's put both of us in an uncomfortable situation because I've I've never performed solo drum set before, like without a band or anything. I did the whole thing improvised, and it, a lot of it was well, it was just exactly what I would do in the practice room. Except I've never done it in front of people. I've never like had uh, it's just me, my drums in my living room, no plan. Everybody's like sitting down to listen me and I, I got really intimidated and really nervous and i actually felt incredibly uh fulfilled afterwards like it, i think it went great i think i played great i i mean I'm, I'm happy with what happened but the the i guess my point is that the headspace that i was in as a performer while 35 of my friends are sitting very very close to me in in my living room mm-hmm. and i'm 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 having to improvise it's like a high pressure moment. And afterwards I was like, Oh, I wish, I wish I could, I wish there was a way to get myself into that headspace, uh, without setting up this kind of grand, um, event at my, at my home. Like the, just, just the regular occurrence of that as often as I can put myself in that headspace is what I'm saying that the, the flow state, the, the stream of consciousness thing that an improviser gets into, man, it's, it just feels like, it's like a drug. It feels like a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really, really, uh, value that. I, I love that, man. It, it, it's so, yeah, I think, and going back to, to Neil Peart, I mean, I think he recognized the value of impro- improvisation and that's why he studied with Freddie and he wanted to get more into that stuff because he realized that's something he's not good at. And I think that, that you make that connection with music in a way that's undefinable and it really brings a lot of joy and it and it is very fulfilling to walk away from a gig feeling like you've created art on the spot yes yes and that like i said earlier i'm not in the music game to make money i think what i'm doing the the music thing because of that like i'm striving toward art i'm trying to create art and when I walk away from a performance feeling like I did that, that's 
that's the most valuable aspect of this profession to me. Yeah. And you don't have to be in, in jazz or a jazz musician to create right. that scenario. Yes, exactly. And, and the more often I, uh, improvise and kind of discover how to get myself into that flow state place, the more I'm able to go there on gigs that aren't jazz gigs or, or Corey Wong gigs or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Which, which feels, Oh, it feels like progress. I guess like that, that would be how I would describe my progress on the instrument over my thirties was really doubling down on that artistic dimension instead of just the chops or, or stamina or whatever. That's amazing. I want to take a second here and recognize Paul Ekberg for connecting us. Yeah. <laughs> Paul's a great dude. I, I met Paul, um, through some Minneapolis friends. Cause he used to, I think he used to live in Minneapolis at one point or, or something, but I, a bunch of my Minneapolis music friends knew Paul and so he and I connected when he was in Minneapolis before I had moved away. I, I, I was still living there. So this would have been like five or six years ago. And we had coffee. <laughs> no, we didn't have coffee. I had coffee. I asked him to meet me for coffee. And he was like, yeah, great. And then we get there. He's like, I don't drink coffee. <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry, man. Like, what? <laughs> I was going to like, you know, I was going to buy him something. He's like, no, I don't want anything. <laughs> so I, I had coffee. Coffee, and I think he just had a glass of water. We sat there and talked for two hours about this kind of stuff, about music, about drumming, about the profession and, and our career, our respective careers. And uh, we maintained, maintained contact uh, after that. He loaned me some symbols when Delta lost my symbol bag uh, wow. a couple years ago. He like I, I was in Nashville and I like put out an IG like, Hey, I need some symbols. And Paul was the one who responded right away and gave me a set of symbols for a one-off. He's yeah, he's a, he's a good man. That's good. I have yet to have him as a guest. We've been discussing it for some time. We just haven't made it happen, but uh, hopefully in the, in the near future. And we met through some mutual friends and have stayed in touch. So um, in lieu of having the time, to be a guest he uh said you you must speak with steve and um so that's, that's where that's, kind of him. i asked him as well i said well is there anything you'd like for me to cover and he he almost planned the show or planned some of these questions and topics for me he sent me this long wow. email i was like dude this is great and it's i mean i've been a bit of a, a crunch to put out a, an episode tomorrow with with another guest and then prepare for our conversation so he one of the th one of the things he did and and I just I want to read what he wrote because it ties into exactly what we've been talking about he said he wanted me to ask you how often you practice uh, do you have a consistent practice schedule and are there consistent things that you do when you sit down to practice or does it vary for whatever you're feeling that day and it sounds like the the improvisation thing we've we've somewhat covered some of this topic would is that fair to say yeah yeah the improvisation thing is a big part of it yes mm -hmm. uh but i also i also pretty regularly do a thing called that i call the imaginary band which is me playing songs completely by myself from memory without any audio to help me know where i am in the song do you use a click as well uh, occasionally, uh -huh. but, but I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm like, I can't do it without the click. Yeah. So, um, like in my preparation for this tour that I'm on right now, yeah. uh, I'm out with, with Matt Carney. We're playing 
uh, acoustic shows. So it's just me on like a perk rig, this guy, Eli Teplin on keys and, and vocals, and then Matt playing an acoustic guitar and vocals. And there's no tracks. There's no click. We're not using in-ears. It's just wedges. Uh, so the whole thing is really, uh, you know, different than like when I was playing with Owl City or whatever. Point being, before this tour started, I sat with my little perk rig uh, in, in the studio at church. I'm sitting on a cajon, playing it with my foot backwards as a kick drum. Got this little ocean drum thing as a snare drum, and then some shakers. So it's like I, I can kind of cop the kick snare hat, but with with uh, more acoustic tones. And I I played through all the songs by myself without listening to an MP3 or anything. Gotcha. That's that's a way that I prep for gigs. Uh, it I'm proving to myself that I know the music without needing vocal cues or anything else to to help me maintain orientation within the song and that has proven to be a really important practicing tool for for like gigs themselves for okay. specific gigs like i um did a few one-offs with ben rector this last year who i his last tour i wasn't on on the tour so i didn't know the updated arrangements so i had to learn all these arrangements and my process of learning the arrangements was to get them to the point where I could play them by myself with the imaginary band. Like, like I'm hearing his vocal and his, the bass line. I'm hearing all that stuff, but I'm just hearing it in my head instead of with headphones where I'm listening to an MP3. And that, that is a, I would say that's almost as common of a practicing tool for me as the improvising, but it's just specifically geared toward whatever gig I happen to be doing next. I feel like that also gives you an opportunity to hear how musically you are playing and, and the drumming in between the cracks where how you're balancing your limbs and, and how you're yes. creating a groove. Because there's times in the practice room where it, it, it's funny because my 14-year-old laughs at me. He goes, Dad, you have a soundproof room and yet your drums are mic'd. I'm like, well, because <laughs> I run it through a mixer and then I, I you know, and then I bring the music in and I play along with it and I'm so guilty of like I'm not feeling it that day but I turn the music up a little bit louder and I play along with it and it's like no that's not what you do on the gig you are the drummer right right so, the time the time feel coming from only me yes as opposed to the way this uh, track has been quantized with the you know post production in studio settings and and like I'm playing along with um, an, an arpeggiator and like a drum loop and all this other stuff. It turns out I feel really great. Like my time, <laughs> my time feels awesome. And then you take all those things away and it's mm -hmm. just mean and like, Ooh, my time doesn't feel nearly as good. Mm -hmm. that, I think that was a, that was probably a really big part of my initial development as a player. Like when I was in high school, I would do this uh, just for fun. Like I, I loved, uh, well, I went to high school. I was in high school in the '90s, and like I really loved Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins and uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Like I, I would get home from school and play the the album Ten by Pearl Jam, for sure. top to bottom, top to bottom from memory, like it was a concert, just just for fun. Like I'm just sitting at the drums by myself without headphones on or anything like like imagining time for the crowd to like cheer after the song, and then I. <laughs> Count off the next song, like drop into track two. 
Do you have video of this? Whole... I want to see this. No, no. <laughs> and then, nobody had video of anything happening in the nineties because we didn't have, you know, like a, my parents maybe had a camcorder somewhere upstairs, but I, I like I, I was just doing it for fun, and I, I would play entire shows like that, imaginary shows of just me on the drums, but all the other sounds are coming from my head. And occasionally when I was learning the songs, I, I would have to like get up from the drums and go into my room and, and press play on the CD player to like, I don't remember how the bridge goes on this song and I want to play it. Like I, I want to sit in the imaginary band place and perform this song by myself in my parents' basement, but I can't remember how the song goes. So my, my early formation of just no, understanding the roadmap of a tune, like understanding the song form, all that came from this imaginary band scenario. It it almost sounds like too you're avoiding some of the pitfalls of the modern era of of monitoring that we all enjoy with in ears and this really curated sound and mix and EQ. That if you're at a if you're doing these gigs where the 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 drum sound is really great and fat and all these things, the, and then you go to a songwriter gig or you do an acoustic gig like or a tour like you're doing, and it's just monitors. I mean, I understand you've got the acoustic thing going on, but there's been times that I've gone in and played a, a gig and like the drum mix isn't good or or, or there's no in ear mix and and it, it freaks me out. And it's like, what, right. am, what am I, like, why? Why you should be right. able to perform at the top of the level. Not that you set up a practice space that is supposed to be crappy sounding so that when you go do the gig, you're inspired by the sound. But, I mean, you need to be able to perform at a high level no matter what the situation. Yeah, man. I that <laughs> could not agree more. In fact, one of my, I, I won't call it a pet peeve because uh, that's too strong of a term, but, like, something that irritates me is when I'm working with an artist or even just watching an artist do their sound check. I'm not even working for them. And we're just, maybe we're just playing the same bill or whatever. And they're doing sound check and, and they're getting real, real picky about, about their monitors and, mm-hmm. and they're not very good. Like, like the artists themselves, like mm-hmm. not a great, not a great player. What, what are you doing being so picky about your monitors? Uh, maybe you should, maybe you should practice more. This, <laughs> this is me getting, getting on a little bit of a soapbox, but like I, I'm very passionate about, about not blaming stuff for like, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and I regularly see drummers, musicians, uh, you know, songwriters, band leaders, or just bass players or whatever, like kind of blaming their mix when something goes wrong. And man, I never, <laughs> uh, I don't ever see the mix actually being at fault in those situations. When stuff goes wrong, it's usually the musician themselves making mistakes or just not uh, thinking clearly or not, not being sharp as opposed to the mix Boy, the mix really cost us an issue here. Like that almost never happens. But the, the church that I work at, the, uh, my job as a lead music director at this mega church is to oversee all the band members at, all of our locations the church has 10 different locations and i'm i'm the guy responsible for booking the bands and kind of overseeing all those musicians Mm -hmm. and uh as a result we will bring in a couple times a year like a a clinician like a guest uh, like a friend of mine from somewhere around the country to come in and do a master class workshop for all of our players and a few years ago my buddy cody fry do you know him he lives in nashville i do not uh, Cody is an f- absolute force. He's uh, 
a lot younger than me and you. Like he's, I think he's still in his twenties, maybe mid twenties. Uh, just a really, really talented musician. I worked with him in Ben Rector's band for a while, and I, I play a lot of Cody's solo music now. He came in and gave a masterclass for our team, and one of the one of the things he said was this exact point, which is that your your mix is not ever the reason that you're making a mistake. Mm. There there are certainly some helpful things about a good mix, one of them being inspiration. But don't blame your mix. In fact, try like maybe set up some bad mixes for yourself on occasion, just to show yourself that you can do it. Yeah, even even when the mix is bad. And I was so pumped to hear him say this, especially in the presence of the whole team. Like all my musicians are, all the musicians that we, you know, we, we use in the church, they're all there. They're all listening to him say that I can see them all kind of like looking at each other. It's like, ha, now, now you guys are not going to be able to get away with blaming your mistakes on your mixes anymore. Cause here's Cody telling everybody that that's not how it works in the, in the, in the pro world. And yeah, man, that, uh, wow. That's a, I'm, I'm getting excited over here because that's such an important topic to me. <laughs> just, just in the in the in the realm of not blaming, yeah, not not blaming mistakes on anything other than my own prep, preparation level, my own skill set. Uh, the 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 monitor, the in ear mix has become a regular. I've I've observed the in ear mix has become a regular scapegoat for musicians who maybe have no business blaming their mix. I I think it's it's. It's not an easy thing to admit to, but it's an important thing if you want to be professional about this. And if yeah, you're not yeah, comfortable, if you're not comfortable with your mix, guess what? Get over it. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm project. I've got a mirror here in my studio slash exercise room, so I've got a mirror on the wall here, so I'm able to look at mm-hmm. myself and say, "Hey, dude." Just because I'm spoiled, man. Most of the gigs that I have, I get some pretty nice mixes. I'm even playing in clubs where I have an app on my iPad and I'm able to mix myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the technology has allowed us to get into this space that even just five years ago we weren't able to. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it makes the playing experience that much sweeter. But there are going to be those situations, those important situations, those important gigs that you have to rise above a crappy mix. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's what a professional does. An am- an amateur a sign of an amateur is like ah if, if the situation isn't perfect then I can't do it. Like, oh, okay. That's like, it. that's pro- yeah. Pro- pros are there to just like whatever the situation is, I'll do it. That's actually a, a thing that Ben Rector says all the time. Uh Ben's a, a big uh fan of golf. Like he's, he's from my vantage point, Ben is much more excited about golf than he is music. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a, he's an un, unbelievable vocalist. Ben Rector is such a good singer. He's an incredible songwriter. He's good at guitar keys, but then like golf is what he usually talks about. And he always points out how, you know, these professional golfers, every shot they take, they're surrounded by all these people staring at them all these cameras, TV cameras, like all, all, all of this pressure, that's what they're performing under. He's like, Ben's like, I've never played golf under any pressure at all. Like I, I go out and play golf. It doesn't matter. Like if I have a bad shot, all these professionals, you see them playing such good, such like incredibly good rounds of golf. And the entire round, every shot they took was huge pressure. There's no comfort level at all. 
Like the, like these guys are operating under intense circumstances and they're producing under those circumstances, this really high level of excellence. Mm. That's the, I think that's the, the nucleus of this discussion we're having about mix. It's like, okay, your mix isn't perfect. The, the drums, the backline kit that you're using, using on the one-off isn't ideal. Or maybe there's some, like you forgot your symbols, so you had to borrow somebody else's symbols, or you're using different sticks than you usually, it's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like you still have to perform at a professional level because that's what a professional does. Yeah, and the singer doesn't care, the artist, whoever, the audience yeah. certainly doesn't care. Totally, totally, man. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a big deal to me. Is this stuff that you talk about when you do clinics yourself? Um, you know, the, or is it not sexy enough? Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to know how to answer that. To be honest, man, I I, I my clinics are I I try to be relevant to the situation that I'm in. So when I do a clinic at a church, for example, uh, oftentimes I'm talking to a bunch of people who aren't drummers. It's like a an entire worship team uh, roster. So there's a bunch of vocalists and bass players, and so you know I, I'm going to talk in a different way than if I like I did a clinic at Nelson uh, at Bryson's shop. I miss in that. I miss that. Well, I so wanted to go, man. It was it was it was really fun, but that one was like I got to choose the topic and then advertise it as such, like oh here, you know here's what I'm going to talk about or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, because I knew it would be just a bunch of drummers versus if I'm giving a workshop at a at a university for the, their music department and and nobody in the room is drummers but they all have to go to the workshop because of the class requirement or something so i i often improvise even my clinic content because talking about music is something that that subject matter is familiar enough to me that i can just kind of wing it but i want to talk about what the people in the room uh need or would be interested in versus preparing something ahead of time and then kind of reciting from that script Gotcha. So it, it really it really varies depending on the on the circumstance, I guess. That was another topic. I, I, I like to ask that, but that's another thing that Paul has suggested. I'm glad he he wanted to know about that. Uh, in in that clinic that you did at Nelson, you talked about uh, praise and worship drumming. Yeah. What what makes that gig? What makes that type of drumming or that type of gig unique? Is there any characteristics that you could point to and say, well, if if this is what you want to do? be prepared for a b and c so here's the deal with the church scenario nobody bought tickets that's that's like a big to me it's a big factor like a church gig you don't do it under the pretense of performing in the same way that i will perform tonight knowing that everybody bought tickets to see matt carney um people don't buy tickets for church they just they just show up and they don't show up to be entertained they show up to have an experience mm-hmm. so i i feel like the 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 pressure the demand on a church drummer is more toward facilitating an experience than putting on a show okay and i i don't i don't need to even be to over spiritualize that like obviously as a guy who works at a church as a guy whose dad was a pastor like i've i've been in the christian um, American evangelicalism community for my whole life. And I, I know how to talk that language, but without even going there, just, just the nature of the performance space. This is about people having an experience as opposed to 
people being entertained. It, I, I think of it honestly a lot like um, like the bride and her dad that dance like at a wedding reception, if you're playing a wedding reception gig, there's like the first dance yeah. and then maybe the, the bride and her dad and the groom and his mom will, will dance together. Like in that moment as the drummer, yeah, I'm, I'm facilitating memories that have nothing to do with me. Like this is like a really important moment in the life of this bride and groom and their families. I'm there to help them facilitate that experience of memory making and I'm not, it's not about performing. So obviously I need to do th- things well. Like I need to have good time. I need to play the song form correctly. I need to watch my volume, but I also need to really watch my ideas mm. and what kinds of ideas would draw attention to me and away from the experience. I think that that mentality works, you know, across the board for songwriters uh, for people who are hiring me to play their music because they want to spread their message with their music. But even just the specific angle of songwriters still have people buying tickets to show up and be entertained by the show. Whereas church church scenario is just people showing up of their own free will because they want to have an experience that, that to me, that's the nucleus of the difference between what a church musician is tasked with versus the rest of the music world. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's interesting. Um, my nieces and, and nephew are are in that they're musicians and they've they've gone to school for and and they're involved in, in that and and we've had some drummers on as well that are that are doing that and it, it seems and it's evolved over time. I heard an interview you did where you were talking about just the whole praise and worship thing and how it was like almost in the late '80s how that came up and before that it was more traditional music with. Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, basically, as the only right. modern music. Now, in the mid '80s, in the mid '80s, the band, the the church that I was 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 one of the early mega churches, and I mean, they had this like ten piece Ludwig kit, and they had a Simmons electronic kit. And so <laughs> nice. I'm like 12 years old, going, "What is this? This is amazing!" But that was un- I realized that was a unique situation. But it was an opportunity for me to experience music outside a school situation, um, and it, it and it opened my world to music early on. And now my I, we go, I'm a member of a very small church with like six people in the choir and a really great piano player, and that's pretty much it. So uh, we don't have that. But my son has the opportunity. Both of them have the opportunity to participate in music in in small ways because there's a loving community that's there to receive them and and the talent that they want to share that day. Yeah, the, <clears throat> I think the local church has become kind of like what the bar was mm-hmm. uh, in the '60s and '70s for younger, you know, guys that are uh, at a certain age. They all learned how to play just at the local bar, like age twelve. You know, you like you hear that, that over and over. These kind of great musicians that started playing as children in the local bar because back then they weren't too concerned about IDing people on the door, like the legality of letting underage like minors into the bar or whatever. It's like didn't matter. Everybody learned how to play just at the local bar, and then like right around the same time that bars clamped down on who was allowed in and and what age they needed to be, the churches started having actual rhythm sections with bass players and drummers and stuff. And nowadays everybody that I know learned how to play in church. In fact, our, 
our church in, in Phoenix, the one I work at, I'm I'm kind of running like a like a like an underground music school in a way because mm-hmm. I've got so many I've got so many musicians that I need every weekend and I need them to be competent. So I'm I'm working with a lot of them. I spend probably ten hours a week doing private lessons with <clears throat> anybody from our our church's roster. Uh, just kind of as part of my job at the church and getting together one-on-one with all these musicians and helping them sharpen their toolkit for doing the job that I need them to do at, at our church. And there, I mean, there's, that's happening at 10 different locations every week. These bands are getting together and doing their best and learning and growing. And it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot, there are m- many more good musicians in the city of Phoenix as a result of this church being so large, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a nice, nice result of what that church is. Aside from just people showing up to the church to attend the worship service, it's like, there's also a lot of musicians that are getting a a really regular workout as, as musicians, which is, which is pretty, pretty rad. I I think that's happening in most churches around the country these days. Yeah. That's amazing. One of the questions that Paul had as well was what, what was the inspiration to take this job? Ooh, man. Uh, well, that's an interesting discussion. I, there was no inspiration. I, the, the job offer came out of the blue. Like I had, I finished up the record cycle that I was on with Sarah Bareilles in 2014 that fall, uh, didn't have, didn't have anything really going on over the winter. Thought about possibly moving to Nashville because my wife and I at that point had saved up some money to buy a single family home instead of the town home that we've been living in with our, with our daughters and thought, well, if we're going to buy a house, maybe we won't buy one in Minnesota. Maybe we'll buy one in a different, different city and thought about Nashville, decided not to move there. But uh, through some <clears throat> through some backdoor connections, ended up getting hired by Ben Rector that spring, and was getting ready to do a Ben Rector tour. And we had uh, sold our townhome in Minnesota. We didn't have any other option for where to live because we had not found a good home that we wanted to buy in Minnesota. But we had decided that we were going to stay in Minnesota, or so we thought. Just not move to Nashville, I guess. But we we like. Solar Town Home, we didn't have anywhere to live. I was about to go on the road with Ben uh, Rector, and then I got a call from my now boss at this church out of the blue. He had hired me to to come and do a, a workshop for the church, like a master class the year before. So I thought maybe he was calling me to have me come back and do another workshop. And instead, he was like, hey, man, I'm going to throw you Hail Mary. What do you, what do you think about moving your family down to the desert and being the lead music director for me hmm. at the church? From Minneapolis and to I, Phoenix, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I mean, listen, my dad was a pastor. I've been around church employees. I I don't like it. <laughs> like I'm I'm be totally frank with you. Like mm-hmm. I I don't like the con the concept, the uh, the community of like church staff members. Interesting. It's it's I'm not saying I don't like those people. I'm saying sure. that thing, that vocation, it just it has always kind of hit me weird. I don't exactly know how to put my finger on why I don't like it, but I don't. And, and so I, w- I was really not ever interested in working for a church. Like, I, like as an actual employee, like mm-hmm. I, I really like my family has always gone to church together. Like, like, uh, I, I play, it, played in church all, all through high school and my twenties and my thirties in Minnesota. Like, 
I got no problem with, with a church. I just don't want to work for one. So this guy, my, my now boss offering me this job, it was, I was kind of like laughing, like, ha ha, uh, I'm flattered that you would do that. Thanks. But no thanks. Cause I'm definitely not going to go work at a church. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, instead of saying that, which was my first instinct was to say exactly that. Instead, I, I felt this really deep pull to do it. Uh, it, it was, it kind of caught me off guard. I think I even like stammered on the phone and was like, Oh, Ben, um, his name is Ben Gowell. They got it. Mm-hmm. Offered me the job, not to be confused with Ben Rector, who I was on tour with at the, at the time. Anyway, Ben says, uh, you want to be my music director? And I, I was kind of like, ah, uh, man, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I do. And he was like, what? I, t- I totally thought you were going to say no. And I was like, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm supposed to say no on paper, but in reality, I've, I feel like maybe I'm supposed to consider this. It was it was bizarre, man. It was the the first time in my life that I felt myself um, leaning toward doing something that I had no idea I would ever do. Interesting. It was it was crazy, and I I told my wife about it. Um, <clears throat> and she had the same reaction. She was kind of like, "Huh, maybe we should do that." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, you th- you think that maybe we should? Because I think maybe we should." And and both of us kind of looked at each other in disbelief, like, wow. So here's the deal, man. Three months later, we were closing on a home in Phoenix. Wow. Like, we, like it was zero to 60. Like, th- this guy offers me a job. Like, maybe we'll take it. Uh, I had to finish the rector tour. My family flew down there to play. I, I spent the weekend playing for their services and meeting with some of the executive leadership. And everybody loved it. Like, I, my girls, me, like the church people, everybody was like, all right, let's do this. And like okay let's try to find a home here we found a home right away uh bought it moved to phoenix like in in the span of three months went from never ever considering that no possibility like that was not on my radar at all not just working at a church but moving to phoenix there's so many other cities i would have moved to instead if i had been able if i'd been asked to draw up a plan but instead, this job offer comes out of nowhere, and then three months later, we live there, and now I've been there almost almost five years. Yeah, and it's great. I I, I have a really really fortunate position. Uh, let me put it this way: I'm I don't have much to offer a church that would want to hire a full time staff member if it's a standard church, if it's like a normal sized church with a normal uh, scenario. Yeah. This church is insanely large. There's like 40,000 people that attend every weekend. There's 10 locations. Wow. There's an 11th location going in the ground in a few months. Uh, and uh, my job is, as a result, really specific. Um, with the, there's a huge, huge team of staff members in the, in the music department. I'm, I'm one of 16 full-time people that work for the music team as full-time staff. And, and so my my role is very specific and it's kind of just shaped like me. Like I, what, what I'm able to bring to the table is what this role needs, but there's probably like six other churches total in the country that would have a role like this. So it's, it's very, it's very unique. I just want to say that out loud. Like I, I really am grateful for the job that I have at this church, but it is not a normal church job. And, uh, that's part of why I'm able to succeed in it because I'm not a normal church employee. I'm wondering if that scenario is going to become more commonplace in the future. 
Well, I think it might be, uh, partially because the multi-site megachurch model seems like it's growing in its uh, just commonality. Like, like there's, there's just a lot more of that happening mm-hmm. than 20 years ago. But uh, again, like I think there's some uniqueness to the church that I'm at, even just within the leadership. Like my boss, the the rest of the executive leadership team, the way that they're wired is not standard church leadership mm-hmm. people. Like they, their philosophy is about art, for example. Their philosophy is about music. Uh, they're they're pretty unique, and as a result, those particular things at our church are really thriving. And I, that's not necessarily true at at other churches, even other churches that follow the same mega church model. I, I'm pretty regularly having conversations with with lead music directors at other churches asking us, asking me about how our church does things. And they're so surprised when I tell them about our, our methods, uh, that they, they just think, wow, that's, I'm, I'm constantly hearing like, wow, that's so unique. That's so different. And I, I think they're right. It is pretty unique at my church. So I'm not sure how common it'll become <clears throat> unless some of these other unique factors also become common. Does that make sense? It, it does. It's, it, I mean, it sounds like it's a unique situation, but a, but a perfect fit for you and, well, and your family. Yeah. Yes, it is. And uh, again, that's it's worth me saying out loud I'm, that I'm grateful for that. It, I don't take it for granted that I have this somehow like perfect fit of a scenario. <laughs> uh, like, for example, they let me do these tours, you know, like I, like I'm a full-time staff member and they're like, yeah, go out and do tours. That's cool. Partially because they appreciate the perspective that I bring to the planning meetings, the creative meetings that we have as a music department, because my, my perspective is influenced by the rest of the music world on a regular basis, as opposed to just being stuck in the bubble of that church. That's one reason they let me do these tours. Another one is that it gives me kind of like street cred with all the musicians that I oversee. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not just like church staff guy. I'm, I'm like professional drummer guy. So they are willing to listen to my feedback, um, in a different way than if I was just a seminary graduate kind of thing. So it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a dream gig to be honest. That's awesome. Well, the question from Paul was, you know, uh, you know, why did you take the job? Uh, can he, you still do the types of drumming drumming work that you did before? And does it prevent you from taking certain drumming opportunities? And that you've answered all those questions pretty much. It sounds like you're able to take the work and take the work when you want it and concentrate on what you need to at home. Yeah, that's, I think the, the really key ingredient is that I'm, because of this job, I'm able to say no now. Like yeah. cer- certain things that come up, like, hey, do you want to do this? Like, yeah, I don't think I can make it work. As opposed to before, when I had no other source of income, I I needed to say yes to everything that came along because, you know, I just never knew where my next paycheck was going to be coming from as a freelancer, having the the full-time gig. Now, truthfully, I maybe don't make as much money. Uh, My salary at the church isn't exactly what it would be if I was there 50 weeks a year. If If I was never touring ever, like part of my part of the whole job offer was like, you got, you can keep touring, but we're not going to, we're not going to necessarily pay you the same amount as if you were here all the time. Gotcha. Like, yep, that's, that's fine. But it's still something. It's still like, it's not just something. It's, it's, it's a good, it's a, a nice salary for me to have that, that then I can say yes to doing the things that I want to do musically instead of just the things that pay the most. <clears throat> like this, uh, this Cody Fry guy I mentioned before, he's an up and coming artist that I really believe in. I love playing his music and I kind of don't care what he pays me 
what, whatever he asks, what, when he, when he asks me to play for him, I say, yes, I don't say like, well, how much does it pay? Yeah. Which, which is a really freeing thing to be able to do as an artist, uh, like in my own right, as like, I want to contribute to art, not just make money. So now I can say yes to the gigs that I feel like are really like artistically, uh, potent as opposed to just looking for, um, a paycheck from just anybody, which is, which is pretty nice. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. One of, one of my mantras over the last few years is that nobody really knows what they're doing. Like, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Whether if we're talking about you know the CEO of a major company or the the president of a, a of a country or a, like the lead general of an army or what, whatever, it's like these guys get the, these people get into the positions that they're in because of life experience and because of skill sets, but that doesn't mean that they actually know what they're doing. Look, pretty much everybody everywhere is just kind of giving it their best guess. Yeah, and yes, the. The, the guest is informed by the experience and, and the expertise, but it's not a guarantee. Nothing is. Mm-hmm. Every, it's like, ah, I think we should just probably try to do this. Uh, like using, like letting my gut inform me, knowing that my gut is itself informed by these years of experience and, and other things that have happened in my life that, that caused me to look at the world the way I do. Like letting my gut inform me feels really healthy. <laughs> it feels it, like it, it feels really um, freeing instead of like, no, there's a, there's a rule here and you got to follow the rule. Like there's, there's no rules. Like, especially with how quickly things are changing yeah. in the world and, and mm-hmm. how different a life experience I'm having compared to my parents or even my older sibling or uh, like, it's just the rule is pay attention and follow your gut. Maybe that's the rule. I mean, that, that's how I've been operating. And so I would say that the church job offer was that exact same thing of me just kind of like following my gut. I, I, I'm glad you're saying that. I think it needs to be said and it needs to be heard. That's great. Right on. When I was doing some digging and, and watching some YouTube things and different things like that, uh, there was a pre-show warm-up that you did when you were playing with Sarah Borales. And, and by the way, I am so I am, and so many of my friends are huge Sarah Borales fans. I mean, I have been listening to her ever since my wife brought home her, I believe, her second record. And she just, and I walk by and I'm like, hello, that sounds like Matt Chamberlain. What's going on here? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like, wait, yeah, you man. know that? I, like, I can spot that guy a mile away. And I'm like, okay, I hate to admit that I like what my wife's listening to, but I have to know more about this singer. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Sarah Bareilles fan, too. Uh, like, I was listening to her music before I got hired into her band, and I'm even more of a fan of hers now after having worked for her. I went and saw them. She, she, she did a tour this this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Drayton was playing drums. Okay. Which, like, dude if I'm going to get replaced by somebody good grief, like that's that guy's, uh, he's royalty in the drum world as far as I'm concerned and watching them, watching them play in Phoenix. It was just incredible sounding band, but a reminder of 
what a powerhouse she is in her own right. She doesn't surround herself with a good band and then let the band do the talking for her. Like she, she is such a force, both as a vocalist, as a performer, as a songwriter, but also as like a leader. Like the way that she um, see is the CEO of her thing. Yeah, um, it's it's really something to watch, and I have learned a lot from Sarah Bareilles. That's that's amazing, man. That what I was going to say, and I have some questions about about that gig. But um, when I was watching you do this warm up, you do these singles, doubles, triples, quads, groups of five, groups of six, each hand and back down. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that. I, I must have been like gone down the cerebralis rabbit hole on YouTube once and came across your video maybe four years ago. I mean, this video was 2013, but I think for me, it was maybe four or five years ago. And I'm sitting in front of the computer with my sticks and my practice pad. And I come across this thing that you did. And I'm like, oh, that's badass. I got to learn to do that. And that has become a part of my one of the things that I do in my warm up for like the last five years. And yeah, wow. I, I don't remember where it came from. And I'm watching this last night and I'm going, holy crap, that was Steve. That was you. <laughs> Man, I'm so pumped up that, that you found that to be helpful. I mean, I, I think it's a great warm up, and I, I kind of just like invented it for myself, I guess. But like that, the fact that other people would use it, that, that feels great. Thanks for, thanks for telling me that. Dude, I, I mean, to this day, I use that. And those groups of five at the beginning were like, how do I do this groups of five over, you know, keeping, right. keeping the, the 16th note uh, consistent? And then uh, I can always tell where I'm at with my hand uh, fitness by, can I, and I think you were doing 130, but for me to get to 120 and do this was amazing. Uh, and th- that that helps me know kind of where I'm at, but that's always been a thing. And, and I think the thing that I love about it so much is that it, uh, not to get too technical or chopsy or whatever, but I find that that the singles again to describe it to our listeners, you're you're playing say sixteenth um, notes, singles, doubles, triples, groups of four, groups of five, groups of six, and back down. Never never changing the subdivision. It just sounds like rat tat the whole time. Yes, that's that's the important part about it is that you don't. I don't go from doubles to triples by changing from duplet to triplet. Mm-hmm. It, like it just stays. So there's, there's kind of like, if you're going to maintain the four, four time signature in your mind, yes. once you, once you, once you get to the triples and the fives and the sixes, it's, it's unsymmetrical. It's a polyrhythm and you have to kind of like do some thinking in, instead of just moving your arms around. That is what frees me up around the kit is thinking of the three over four or seeing the displacement of the downbeat in groups of five. So if I can, I can play an E and, and an, uh, around the kit in different ways, or if I need to hit something and with more precise time, it also allows me to play more 16th notes single-handedly. If I want to do a 16th note on the hi-hat, um, then it, it does that for me. It's, it's been awesome. So nice just, man, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I had to. I had to. I, that was an epiphany. I was like, "What in the world is going on?" Um, well, tell me about uh, so a couple things, and, and I don't want to spend a, a whole lot of time. But one of the questions that Paul had was kind of your history, and was Owl City like one of the first big tours or gigs that you had throughout your years? Yes, um, by by every metric 
that the general public would use. That was the first big tour that I did. Uh, however, in my mind, the first big tour that I did was with this vocal group from the Twin Cities called the Blenders. And very few people have heard of the Blenders outside of the Midwest. They had uh, a streak of popularity in the 90s when like Boys to Men and that kind of like vocal group presence was popular in in just the general music industry. Mm-hmm. The Blenders had some some traction. They did a, a few tours opening for Jay Leno for his like stand up stuff. He would wow. have the Blenders <clears throat> play for for twenty minutes, and then he would do his stand up or whatever. So ever since then, that group has done a holiday tour around the Midwest, and it's pretty well attended. It's kind of like a, a family tradition for a lot of people. Um, and so when they asked me to do their stuff in, I think it was like 2009, 2010, that was the first time that I was setting my drums up in large performance halls every night for, you know, two weeks straight. Like the first time that I felt like I did a real tour, uh, was working for the blenders. And that, that was like, you know, it's like jazz hands, kind of like vocal quartet singing Christmas arrangements. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing about it that was musically uh innovative or or cha- or um unique but it was a, it was a challenging gig nonetheless because it covered all of these covered a lot of genres and styles like i had to be able to play a good eighth note shuffle uh had to be able to play like kind of like a like a fast like bluegrass and, and everything in between uh time signature changes in the arrangements all of it was on click all there was like video wall behind us and kind of like a big production situation and i i definitely learned a lot being with those guys and after that i ended up getting hired as the music director and drummer for a really large uh children's music outfit called go fish it's like 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 the like the christian wiggles kind of okay uh and i i was their md and drummer for two years um they had a huge presence in the christian world again it's it's kids music so it's a really different musical landscape than anything that i've done in the pop world like like the you know the the kids don't care if it's cool so to speak uh, like or trendy they just, they just want to have a fun experience and you're like so i'll fit like, in that, perfect here no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right well i guess what i'm saying is like it covered all the like we had t- tunes that sounded like bon jovi and other tunes that sounded like brian setzer and and everything in between uh and and I, I was the one putting together the show um from a track standpoint so it was it was like an intensive like ableton uh lesson or like on you know learning on the job like how to make the tracks go the way we needed them to learn how to edit fast and how to run a rehearsal with the, the bass player and the guitar player and, and all, all that stuff uh all that stuff happened prior to me getting into owl city okay. so owl city was the first time that I was on national television or the first time that I was playing in Japan, but it wasn't the first time that I did something that felt like the real music world. Okay. It was just, the, it was just the first time I was on the pop radar. Okay. That's cool. That's good. And it sounds like those things prepared you for that experience. Oh, absolutely. Man, re- re- regarding that comment I made earlier about guys in their twenties that are asking me how to get big gigs. It's like, man, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't get any big gigs during my twenties because all the stuff that I was doing during my twenties was a really necessary preparation so that when I did get a big gig, I made a good impression. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like, th- uh, I started playing with Al- with Al City when I was 31. 
and um, man, twenty six year old Steve probably wouldn't have been able to keep that gig <laughs> the way that I did. Like, I, I just wouldn't say, have been good enough. Uh, oh, just well, skill set or personality? Yeah, yeah. Or? Well, personality would have been part of it, I guess. But like, mostly the way that I would relate to a click track. Like, it took it took some years before I was able to really bury that thing mm-hmm. and make people feel my time while playing to a click. And then th- that like doubled down once I got in Owl City because not only is there a click track, but there's all, all this busy electronic programming in the tracks. Like basically every measure of the entire 90 minutes of that show would have like 16th notes or 32nd notes happening in the rhythmic structure of, of the of the stems. Right. And so if I'm if I'm loose, if my time is loose at all, it sounds really sloppy because I'm I'm flamming with all of these programmed notes. So like being able to get really, really uh, deep into the grid on locking my kick patterns and my hi-hat patterns and uh, getting all that stuff to sit with the tracks in a way that felt cohesive and musical instead of just unnecessarily stacked, um, like just like piles of rhythms that are falling on top of each other like making it sound like one one whole like i would not have been able to do that when i was 26 it it definitely took those later years in my 20s and studio work and getting better at a click track and getting better at controlling my subdivision and how did that experience how does that playing experience differ than working with somebody like sarah well uh, that would be the tracks part is a big aspect like Half the sh- when I first started working for Sarah, half the show wasn't even on click. Okay, like we were like we were just playing. So that's a, I mean that's a big deal. Drummers these days who, who toggle between playing with a click or not playing with a click, I think have a, a huge advantage over drummers who are only ever playing with a click. Yeah, because pretty soon you take the click away, and I don't have any trust in my own time. Yeah, like like the, the click becomes like a security blanket in right. a way. Right. Uh, so. That security blanket was always there on the Owl City gig. And then in Sarah's band, it's like, it's not there. You just got to play the song and trust yourself and play assertively. Um, some of the guys that I was in the band with with Sarah back in 2014 are are still in her. We're, we're in the live band for this last tour. And I was talking with them about, about it. They weren't using tr- clicker tracks on any of the tunes. Like the entire 90-minute show, they're just on wedges. Wow. They're not, like, not not even on ears like just like real musicians you know what i mean like uh, like like real music without any of the tech technology support which i don't i'm not the guy who says that that's like inherently better yeah like oh yeah like not not using tracks is 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 superior to every instance where there are tracks it's like that's not that's not true there's a lot of shows that really benefit from the track presence Mm -hmm. um but the ability to do either is pretty important and if there's going to be no click, do you feel hamstrung as a drummer or, or can you take charge like that? That was a, a big shift between the Owl City gig and the Sarah gig. Um, and then just even like some fundamentals of the kit, like I, I, I didn't use my rack Tom at all in Owl City. Like the first tour that we did, I was noticing like I've, I'm setting up my rack Tom you know, like I'm a drummer. I have a rack tom. I have a floor tom, uh, and I've also got this electronic pad, like the SPDSX, that I need to use for a lot of sounds. And I have this 
external pad on the other side. So I've got the SPD set up above my hi-hat to my left, and then I've got this other pad above my floor tom over to the right of my ride cymbal so that I can access electronic sounds with both hands readily. And then my rack tom is sitting there in the middle of the kit, totally untouched for the whole tour. So so for the next tour, just because the rack tom, like the voice of the rack tom didn't really make sense in any of his music. So the next tour, I just got rid of the rack tom, and I put the SPD there in the rack tom position where it's readily available to either hand at sure, any time. sure. And that completely changed the way I related to it, um, which was like suddenly became it became much more core uh, to what I was playing in Owl City. And then and then getting into Sarah's band is like, oh, for sure I need a rack tom, so I got to bring the rack tom back and move the SPD to a different location and and uh, start playing a little more like a conventional singer songwriter drummer instead of a, a electronic pop drummer. You know, like the just the just the vocabulary of what I would use in fills and stuff like that was pretty different. It's this one of the things that I wrote down as I was listening to you and watching you is one of the first things that kept coming to mind is modern drummer. I think that as you know, everybody has a different history with the, with their instrument, with, with the instrument and, and music and things like that. But I and I I made a list. It's like, why am I thinking this? What what makes me think this? What are these elements? And of course, I'm watching videos of you um, going back as far as I think 2010, 2013. You know, a, a little bit. And there seems to be from around that time up until now, you've done a lot, lots of different things, lots of different groups, and and up into your current gig. But um, so some of this stuff may not be as current but at the same time i wrote this list and i just kind of want to get your reaction i don't know if i really have a question <laughs> as much as i do just kind of like opening up this idea about what it is to be a modern drummer so here's a list of things uh, a fusion of electronic and acoustic drums recreating programmed beats live linear mm, groove yeah. linear grooves linear fills hi-hat less of a timekeeper and treated more like another color uh, big symbols, dark symbols, never overplayed. Does that wow. does that feel like that kind of describes a, a drummer in the you know twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen? Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, all of those bullet points I think are accurate to not necessarily my style but rather just the context that I keep getting asked to play in. Like I, I'm not the guy who only likes dark symbols. It's mm -hmm. just that dark symbols are the ones that seem to work yeah. in, in the, in the settings that I'm in. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think a linear pattern or a linear fill is cooler than a layered pattern or layered fill or, or, or textbook like standard fill. Like, mm -hmm. I, they, they just seem to work better in the contexts that I'm in. And same with the hi-hat as a timekeeper. I mean, yeah, like everything that you pointed out, I think that's accurate to just the landscapes that I've been inv invited into. Okay. Uh, re recreating programmed beats live. That that was actually a, 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 a lesson that I learned in Owl City. The first time that I played with that band, I was a sub. Uh, I wasn't like the new drummer. I was just filling in on a one-off and so I had to do it the way the older drummer had the drummer before me. I had to do it the way he did it exactly because that's what everybody was expecting. Yeah. And the MD is like, okay, I'm going to give you the the SPD pad so you can learn how to play all the synth uh, 
the synthesized the samples. And I was like, dude, you guys have a bunch of tracks. Why do you why do you have any of the samples being played by the drummer on the pad? Why don't you just have them in the stems? Like why like why don't you just put them in the Ableton session instead of having me play them on a rubber pad? Mm-hmm. And he was he was like, well, the audience likes to watch you do it rather than you sit there motionless while the computer plays. Like if you can physically do it and they can see that and connect what they're hearing to what they're seeing, they're going to have a better experience. Right. And, and I was like, okay, whatever. Like, like I kind of didn't buy it. And until I got into the seat and actually played the show and realized like, oh yeah, this is a moment, this moment where I play the kick and snare with my hands on this pad people are people are in like they like that and and it it kind of shifted the way that i approached that subject in general up until that point anything that was synthetic anything that was a sample i would always just put in the stems and that's how i made the decisions that i did with go fish when i was emptying that and putting the ableton session together it's like i didn't have any electronic pad or anything and then i took that lesson from owl city and moved into sarah's gig like the first the first gig that i did with sarah was to play that single brave yeah. on the today show which was kind of like it was kind of like the audition for all of us in her band her <laughs> the new iteration of her band it's like we all got hired to play that show and if it went well maybe we would get hired to do additional stuff in the future but either way we're getting hired to play the show we're just going to play this one song and so we rehearsed for a couple hours uh you know the day before doing the taping and um i i came into the rehearsal with those samples of the drum group at the beginning, like Aaron, Ster- Aaron Sterling played on that song uh-huh. created such, such cool tones. And I had gotten the the sessions from the producer. so I had all of the tones and, and uh, verbatim. And so I just put them on my SPD, but I had also learned how to play it kind of like on the drums. If she wanted me to do that. Okay. And, and I had the loop in the Ableton session that I built if she wanted to do that. But I, I was going to give her the option of like, do you want me to play this on this pad or, or do you want me to just imitate it on the drums or do you want to just leave it in the tracks? And she she was really pumped about me playing it on the pad and was kind of like, thanks for cutting those samples up and putting them on your pad and learning how to play it that way. I definitely want to do it that way. I wouldn't have thought to. Uh, so, so I'm glad you did. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that was just that was me learning from the environment that I was in in Owl City of like I, I wouldn't have chosen to do it that way if I hadn't been in that band and kind of been forced to do it in Owl City. And so therefore, I guess recognizing your point, which is like that is, I guess, an aspect of modern drumming. Once again, my context is what taught me that rather than me making a list uh, of my own accord, like imagining what modern drumming includes. It's like, well, no, just the real life being out on the road doing this with these different artists. Yeah learn like using an spd is is pretty important and and then and then knowing like i guess like anything knowing when to not use it too because there's a bunch of sarah's tunes that don't benefit from that mm-hmm. that that i needed to play normally instead of and, and even like this acoustic tour that i'm doing with matt right now the rig that i'm using i used with sarah we did a bunch of acoustic trio stuff overseas in the fall of 2014 where she didn't bring the whole whole band it was just three of us <clears throat> and uh i was using this cajon and ocean snare and shaker thing and when we were doing these rehearsals with matt i knew that those would those sounds would work uh but he had said why don't you bring your spd too because we can get a lot out of that it's like oh yeah we can get a lot of sounds but then as we were rehearsing it's like ah we don't need this it's not 
it's not the right time musically, even though in 2019 using an SPD is almost an afterthought at this point. Like it's like assumed like, yeah, if, if you're going to show up to do a gig, you're going to bring an SPD. And if, mm-hmm. especially if it's, if it's a small set setting, you know, where you're trying to have like a stripped back appearance on stage and the SPD has a lot of firepower, but tonally speaking, it just wasn't helping. Like, yeah, I, I don't think I am going to use it even though it is 2019 and it's like a modern quote thing to do. It's still like, I guess my point is it's, it's still context driven. It like in my head, it always has to be the context that determines what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the fence about it. I, I haven't needed like the, the, the tour I'm on right now, there's tracks and I'm, I'm running them from a laptop and yeah. we're playing along and there's there isn't a whole lot but there's stuff on every song and i was able to to spend some time working on it and i, I volunteer to rebuild the tracks from because this this tour hadn't done this this show since like 2011 so we were able to kind of update it and so i took it upon myself to to, to help develop that skill but i'm not i'm not using pads and i, I have yet and this is personally personally speaking i have yet to to play a gig where they're saying you need an SPD, you need a pad. Um, now that sometimes people will say, Hey, do you have a pad? You can trigger this. And I'll say, no, I don't, but I'll just, I'll trigger it with the space bar here and we'll run. And they'll be like, okay, cool, whatever. And they're fine with it. But, um, right. So I, I think that there's a lot of gigs that, um, I, and, and in Nashville, I, I'm seeing them for sale a lot. And I'm kind of wondering, and let me, let me ask you, do you think that we're kind of on the, downward trajectory of using pads or do you think that's still just as relevant as it's ever been in in maybe pop music huh yeah okay so the pop music question is certainly a big part of it like a pad isn't necessary if you're in kings of leon right or you know like if you're playing that kind of thing the pad's not important pop music synthetic drum sounds and samples have completely replaced actual drum sounds and samples to the point where like Billie Eilish's drummer has to kind of like imitate real drumming instead of, or like kit drumming, mm-hmm. but it's mostly just, just samples. Yeah. And that's, and that music sounds amazing. I love it. I, I mean, I love the way her brother Phineas produces all that stuff in the way that her last record, I, I really like that music, but the point is like the pad is essential to that stuff. Okay. So I, I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, but yeah, if you're in a modern country gig, maybe the pad isn't as important as it was a few years ago. Yeah. And I, I will respond specifically to one thing you pointed out, which is that a lot of guys in my, in my world, I, I, I notice a lot of guys thinking that the pad, an SPD is just supposed to be a controller for their Ableton session. Yeah. And that's, that's not how I have ever used it. Uh-huh. I always just use my fingers on the keypad of my laptop yeah. to control the Ableton, Ableton session. Like I'm using hotkeys and the space bar and that's how I do that. Me too. Uh, yeah. The, the pad is set up as like a synthesizer, like with just stereo quarter inch out outs to a DI and the samples that I load onto the pad are actual audio samples as opposed to the pad being a MIDI trigger for something else. And that like every now and then I'll get questions from somebody online like, about a pad thing and what they're asking is about interfacing the pad with their Ableton session. And I'm like, I don't know, man, <laughs> like best, best of luck figuring that out. Cause I, I really have never done that. And I'm, I'm sure there are some cool things to do. I mean, I, I know for a fact that there are some cool ways to incorporate the pad 
as a controller for an Ableton session, especially for like improvising, like live DJing and stuff like that. But the context that I've been in, the pad is just, if nothing else, it's a visual representation of what people are hearing where you're actually giving them the sounds that they expect to hear with these samples, as opposed to imitating the sounds, replacing them with actual kick and snare pattern on a real drum set. Cause that, that, that can work. You know, there's a, there's a way to play the song. That's me just like, for example, that Sarah Burrell's tune brave and the samples that are used at the beginning of the tune. They're so signature. Everybody yes. kind of like recognizes the song right out of the gate because of that. There was one night where the tracks rig, uh, where my uh, SPD uh, went down, like the power got cut and I didn't have the SPD. So I had to just play the song with my kick and snare yeah. and it went fine. Like everybody still enjoyed the song. It was still the song and it was totally cool. So like that can happen. You can just scrap the pad altogether and replace it with actual kick and snare. But the modern pop landscape, I don't think benefits from that. Like the, the music's not better when that goes goes mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. it, like i think the best version of the live pop experience right now has those actual samples but instead of just being in the ableton session the audience can watch you play them i think that's cool yeah uh, and and i i guess to answer your question directly i, I don't think it's going anywhere okay good i i think that and uh, and from my perspective in nashville and and most of the work that i do is is country and 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 modern country and stuff like that. And there's been a big pushback to some of the more uh, slick pop country uh, with, with more singer songwriter stuff and in some elements, you know, it, it, it's all over the map right now. Um, and, you know, no matter how you feel about the direction of country music or whatever and, and pop country and all those different things as a working musician, I think to understand those, um, the demands of what's what's being asked of of us in these gigs and and some of the opportunities that we would hate to miss if the uh, if you're asked to go out and play with these people to have a better understanding of 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 what we should know and the skill sets and the knowledge that's necessary to stay working. Yeah, and you know this reminds me of. You saying that reminds me of something I, I've talked with a lot of my students about, which is that as I get older, I have to work hard to stay aware of the new music that's occurring. Mm -hmm. um, and part of what I have to do is tell myself that the new music that's occurring is valuable. Yeah. It's cool. Mm -hmm. And I just need to understand why, as opposed to maybe shooting from the hip with my own um, assessment of the music, like, oh, I don't like this. This doesn't sound like Radiohead, so I don't like it because I only like Radiohead. <laughs> or, 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 you know what I mean? Like, just like uh, kind of blind judgments that are based on uh, litmus tests that reflect just my preference, right? That, like, there's, there's all this music that um, challenges my preference mm -hmm. or challenges my past experience with listening. And so I have to kind of like dig in and, and listen with a little more uh, awareness to why other people like this. Like, like I, I love asking my daughter, Betty, my ninth grader, like, you know, what she's listening to and, and then asking her why she likes it. Like, not just what, what are you listening to? And then I, I decide whether or not it's cool. It's like she, she's already decided it's cool and I want her to let me in on why. 
Like right. what, what is it that's grabbing her about this music? And then see if I can't start to feel that same thing. I think that's a, um, a healthy and beneficial way for a modern musician to stay up to speed on what's necessary from us. Like mod- modern drummers understanding what the modern landscape needs from a drummer, just paying attention to modern music in general and not letting myself be the old guy, yeah. you know, like get off my lawn thing. <laughs> like I, like really paying attention to what people like and why they like it so that I can get on board instead of uh, being all judgy. Well, two things there. You may discover something that's just wonderful that you... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The other thing in our house, when when I'm acting old and crotchety, my 14-year-old likes to say, okay, boomer. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm Gen X, bro. Um, <laughs> tell me about... My, my daughter hasn't figured that one out yet, but I hope she never uses it on me. <laughs> Um, tell me about the rest of this week or this tour. How long, how much longer are you out? Well, uh, just a few more days. This, this acoustic stuff that Matt's been doing has been in like legs. So the first two week leg of shows was the second half of October. And then we have these two weeks here in the first half of December. I'll be back in Phoenix, um, on, on Saturday on the 14th. And then we have another two weeks uh, second half of January. So that that's worked out really nicely with my church schedule, um, getting ready for the Christmas services and all that stuff with my job there. And it's, I, I think I prefer three, two week, uh, stints over one long six week Mm -hmm. run. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what, that's what we're in the middle of this, uh, this particular run where we've been West coast. So we started down two shows in LA and then, couple shows in Napa because Matt's got a, a really heavy presence in wine country. He's kind of like a, a wine guy and has released a handful of bottlings like under his own name. So like people in the, in the vineyard community, uh, the wine community, they all know. Okay. Matt's do, music. Yeah. Do you need a tech Steve? Cause I'm ready. To go. <laughs> exactly. Dude, it's, we, I've done three or four like private vineyard events with Matt just over the last year and a half Ugh. because of and it's the first time I've ever done that ever with any artist and and now multiple times with Matt because of his presence <laughs> uh which is yeah a nice uh perk <laughs> that's awesome man that's amazing <laughs> yeah we're in Portland today and tomorrow uh and then we play Spokane on Friday okay. um we just came from Eugene and Seattle and I mean it's that's all just Pacific Northwest stuff. I love it up there, man. It's like my favorite part of the world. Yeah, dude. So. I'm definitely going to go to revival, revival drum shop today. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, Steve, I appreciate this so much, man. I, 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 there's so much to unpack here and I'm excited for people to hear this conversation. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Matthew. It's been, uh, it's been delightful to, get to know you in this format and i hope that we can sit down in person for some coffee totally next next time i'm in nashville i'm gonna look you up let's yeah please do it would be great to meet you in person we'll we'll grab paul and make him pay for our coffee perfect i love that plan (laughs) (laughs) Uh, stay in touch i know you come through town from time to time and i i I am completely honest with you about just uh, enjoying listening 
to you play and watching you play and try and figure out what I can do to, you know, apply some of those things that you're doing. Um, and I love it. I just, I Thank really you, love man. it. And, Thank and, you. and I also want to do a shout out of, of a uh, 2012 recording you do mass with uh, some of the guy, one of the guys from Owl City that I've been, yeah. listen, that I've been listening to um, Jasper nephew that you did. I encourage listeners to check that M A S S S. You can find that online and, and we'll try and have links to that in our, well, we will have links to that in our uh, show notes for people to check oh, out. Thank you. Thank you for, for mentioning that. Yeah, that's that's a record that I'm really proud of. It, uh, speaking of improvisation, I mean, the whole the whole album was just improvised over the course of a day and a half. We recorded the whole record over the span of like 16 hours, and it was all kind of like, whatever comes out is what's going to come out, and then it turned into something that I'm just really grateful that we, that we recorded. And man, Jasper, the guitar player that you mentioned, he is otherworldly. I feel like this guy is on a on a completely different plane musically speaking the way his mind works his his chops like his ability his relationship to the guitar it's it, it's insane I, at this point all i ever do are like studio sessions with him maybe a couple two three times a year but every time i come away inspired jasper nephew is really a heavyweight that's 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 amazing <clears throat> man. well it, it sounds it sounds amazing and the tones and everything like that it's it's so great it's it's definitely Thanks, it's definitely stuff that i would listen to before a session Oh, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm so glad you enjoy it. That means a lot. Thanks yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We'll keep in touch, Steve, and okay. um, I'll do the same, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Right on, Matthew. Thanks again right. for this. All right, sure. Bye-bye. See ya. So there you have it, my conversation with Steve Gould. I don't know why I'm constantly surprised by these interviews that as it's going along, I'm thinking, wow, this is such great information, and... There's just every interview, there's something that is new to my ears, and I hope it is to you. And Steve is no exception. He's got some great ideas and concepts that as soon as we were done with the conversation, I found myself employing them in the rehearsal space, in on the gig. And uh, I hope you got that as well. It was really great. And I'm so happy with that connection through Paul Ekberg. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interviews. As a reminder, Zach and I are doing a presentation for Drum Day at Lane Music here in Brentwood, Tennessee, Saturday, January 25th at 1 p.m. Come out and join us. Hope you all have a great new year, and thanks so much for listening, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.